What accounts for severe outcomes among immunocompromised adults hospitalized with COVID-19? A new oral therapy for high-risk hospitalized adults with COVID-19. A real lack of benefit seen in knee injections for osteoarthritis. And a study that provides insight into the long COVID symptoms. That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. We'll apologize a priori to everybody who's listening. You are in France riding your bicycle, so we have a few dropouts sometimes. Let's turn to, gosh, this week we've got three out of four studies on COVID. So which of your two would you like to start with? According to the World Health Organization, about one quarter of individuals who develop COVID infection continue to experience symptoms four to five weeks, and approximately one in 10 have continuing symptoms for 12 weeks. We've called that in the past long COVID symptoms, but the more recent scientific expression is called post-acute sequela of COVID-19, or PASC, PASC. This is a study that may provide a little insight into that. It's a study conducted from some investigators at Harvard who analyzed plasma samples collected from about 37 individuals that had long COVID or PASC, and they compared it to 26 individuals that also had COVID. And they looked at the different protein biomarkers to see if they could identify some that were associated with PASC. What they discovered was in this individual studied, about two thirds of them had persistent spike proteins detected in their blood whereas those without long COVID symptoms did not. There might be some sort of persistent reservoir in the body. This, let me just mention, is published on the preprint server MedRxIV. I'm interested in any information that may have been in this, and there may not be any, about the subtypes of the which strain of COVID-19 are we talking about? This study actually spans three different viruses that have been present. The spike protein ends up being relatively conserved across the different types. And there are two different subtypes of the spike protein called S1 and S2, and then the combined. And it was the combination of that was detected in two thirds of the individuals. Clearly, one of the things that we're going to need in order to really nail this down is going to be a whole lot more than 60 something patients and a whole lot more factors assessed. I agree. So this is a preliminary study. It's a small number of individuals and even in a larger cohort. If there is a persistent reservoir, we need to figure out where that is. More to come. Let's turn to morbidity and mortality weekly report. And this is a look at what are the factors among immunocompromised people that are associated with severe outcomes when in fact they are hospitalized with COVID-19. This study was conducted looking at ICU admission and in-hospital death from March 1st, 2020 to February 28th, 2022. They looked also among these folks at vaccination status. And this is all part of the COVID net surveillance network from the CDC. This was a sample of 22,000 plus adults hospitalized for COVID-19. 12.2% of the sample were immunocompromised. They looked at unvaccinated patients and those with immunocompromised clearly have higher odds of ICU admission and in-hospital death than non-immunocompromised people and also fully vaccinated people for that matter. Of course, non-immunocompromised patients have lower odds of death than 
especially those who are vaccinated compared to those who are unvaccinated. The rather daunting news in my mind was that among these immunocompromised patients who were hospitalized, their odds of death between those who were vaccinated and those who were not vaccinated did not differ. They also come to the conclusion that what we really need to do is maintain among those who are immunocompromised, a lot of the physical separations among their close contacts, also close contact immunization, of course, early testing, prophylactic medication administration, and then early antiviral treatment as soon as they become positive for COVID-19. I agree with you. There's some parts of it, the study that I think are encouraging. For example, one of the facts is that COVID-19 vaccination among immunocompromised persons is highly protective against being hospitalized for the infection. However, as you said, what's disappointing is once they are hospitalized, the vaccination does not decrease the result of being in the ICU or death if we want to keep them out of the hospital. The thing that is otherwise a little bit disconcerting among this particular study is even though when you look at immunocompromised individuals, they only composed about less than 3% of the adult population, yet they accounted for 12% of the adult hospitalizations in the COVID net. And when we talk about being immunocompromised, just people with AIDS, on steroid therapy, a solid organ transplant, people that have multiple myeloma, let's change gears and let's talk about something that's really encouraging, and that's a new oral therapy. That's right. Let's turn to that, and that's in NEJM evidence. This is a medicine called sabazabulin. It's an oral agent that has dual properties. It's antiviral and it's anti-inflammatory. And it's been tested in preclinical models. Here, it's being used in high-risk hospice adults. Now, by the way, we have very few therapies that are effective in this group. So they looked at 204 patients, again, hospitalized adults with COVID-19, high risk for dying or a high risk for being in the ICU or on mechanical ventilation, and they randomize them to routine therapy. That could include remdesivir, dexamethasone, whatever else. The other half or two-thirds of patients actually received, in addition to that, sabazabulin, an oral agent administered once a day for up to 21 days. And they follow these individuals for 60 days looking at mortality. That was the primary endpoint. Secondarily, how long were in the ICU or how long were they on mechanical ventilation or how long were they in the hospital? Here's the thing that's really encouraging. With regard to 60-day mortality, to tell you how high risk this group was, in those that received routine standard care, the mortality at 60-day was 45%. That was cut in half to 20% with the use of sabazabulin in addition to routine therapy. There was a 43% reduction in ICU days, about a 50% reduction in days on mechanical ventilation, and about a 26% reduction in days in the hospital, all versus placebo. And by the way, fewer side effects in those that received sabazabulin than than those that received just standard care. This is really encouraging news. Yeah, and accounts for why they're publishing it so early. So I guess we should thank them for that. It's an interesting mechanism for me. They describe it as a novel microtubule disruptor. I'm wondering about that mechanism. Certainly that's a mechanism in other types of infections that involve things like retrograde transmission in neurons, but I'm just wondering how it actually works with regard to viral replication. Okay, so here's what it does. It disrupts the microtubules that are inside the cells. And these microtubules are responsible for transporting the virus into the cell, within the cell, replicating, and also causing the virus after it's replicated to leave the cell. 
Microtubules are involved in all of that. So this disrupts those. That's the primary mechanism. Secondly, it's also anti-inflammatory. And we know that the cytokine storm that comes after the viral infection is responsible for the respiratory distress syndrome, the septic shock, and the frequent death. So by both inhibiting microtubules or disrupting them and being anti-inflammatory, these dual properties are what make it so effective, even as an oral agent. I'm just really fascinated with this, and I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that this novel microtubule disruption mechanism, maybe we're going to be hearing a lot more about this and a lot of other meds. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this could be extended to other therapies or other diseases in the future. All right, speaking of things that have been affected, let's talk about something that is not effective therapy. Yes. So this is taking a look at knee injections for knee osteoarthritis. And I learned a new word. I don't know if you knew this one before or not. Visco supplementation, that's the injection of different things into the knee in an attempt to kind of improve both the volume and the viscosity of the fluid that's normally in the joint. And this was something that came over the transom a while ago. I seem to remember us talking about it when we first started hearing about potential for this therapy. And it makes intuitive sense. This is a meta-analysis, of course, where they took a look at 169 trials providing data on almost 22,000, just over 21,000 randomized participants. Their primary outcome measure was pain intensity. They basically found that there really wasn't any evidence to support the use of injections into the knee for osteoarthritis. And that's really bad news for the 560 million people worldwide who are living with knee osteoarthritis. This hyaluronic acid really doesn't help at all. And the bad news is that there is strong conclusive evidence indicating that this strategy is associated with an increased risk of serious adverse events, including infections. Sounds like everybody ought to be putting away those needles. So Elizabeth, as you mentioned, this is a really incredible study, incredibly important because recently one in every seven patients with knee osteoarthritis in the United States have received injections of hyaluronic acid or its derivatives as first-line treatment. You know, we spent recently over $325 million using this hyaluronic acid injection. And about a fourth of that was spent on, as you said, the complications, that is large joint infections that occur because you stick a needle into a joint and the joint subsequently becomes infected. And about one in 25 individuals that receive an injection will develop one of those infections. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, Elizabeth, is, you know, this has been reviewed before in a meta-analysis, but this one included 80 studies that weren't previously reported. And many of those, by the way, haven't been published because they're negative studies. The hyaluronic acid doesn't prove to be beneficial and they just don't publish the studies. And that leads to bias. These particular authors were able to come across those studies and identify them, again, to prove that this particular therapy really isn't beneficial. A definitely eloquent argument for why we should have some kind of repository for all studies. In fact, that's what clinicaltrials.gov does. To start a clinical trial, you have to register it with the government, and then they subsequently look to say, were the results published or not? And if they aren't, and it's a negative study, then that leads to what we would call publication bias. The only published studies that are positive, which the treatment seems like it's more effective than it really is. On that note, then, safe time on your bicycle. Don't overuse your knees, so you aren't tempted to have an injection. <laughs> and that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.